Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma. Kurt is on assignment today. We're really thrilled to be joined by a good friend, Tanvi Madan, someone I've known for a long time, someone I've counted on for all of her advice and insights on the Indo-Pacific. Tanvi, we were hoping to do this in person, but it's great to see you on the virtual format as well. It's good to be here, Ambassador Dr. Varma, and it is just one of those things where at least we can do this uh, through video, if not in person, but I'm sorry we couldn't do it in person. Yeah, no, exactly, but you're really kind to be with us. I know you're in great demand. I follow you closely on Twitter. I watch your other uh, podcasts. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, but I want to make sure I do a proper introduction of Tanvi. Dr. Tanvi Madonna, Senior Fellow in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution here in Washington, D.C., and Director of the India Project. She has her doctorate from UT Austin. No surprise, I think your dissertation was focused on the U.S., China, and India, which has turned in to a great book, and, and that's what I'm really excited to talk about is Tommy's new book called The Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War, published by Brookings Institution's Press. And it has received exceptionally positive reviews, again, which is no surprise. But first, I just want to see how you're doing, where you are, what life has been like in lockdown and remote work for you. I'm in D.C., very lucky to, to be right near Rock Creek Park. So I do have a little bit of an outlet. I am a social being. I'm an extrovert, so I miss kind of other human beings. Um, but it's been a good time for me to actually start working on my next book, which is kind of looking at the U.S.-China-India triangle and particularly kind of India's choices that it's made vis-a-vis -vis China and the U.S. and how those choices have interacted over kind of the 90s, 2000s, and the last you know, decade or so. So it's given me some time to do that. And at the moment, deep diving on the 1980s, which is also an interesting period for this. So Wow, that's great. So this book, and we'll talk about it in a second, is focused on the 40s through the 70s. And so it sounds like you're working on the, the part two to that book. Yes, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it. And with a slightly different take in terms of particularly focusing on India's choices, which is what there seems to be a lot of interest in, you know, how does India choose to partner with countries in particular? Yeah, I'm really interested in how you got started down this pathway, not only US, China, India, but really how you became a foreign policy scholar. Tell us a little bit about that, your journey from Delhi to Texas and to the US and Brookings Institution. It's one of those things where people, you know, talk about kind of being destined to do something. And I've always had interest in foreign affairs. I traveled, uh, thanks to my parents, fairly, when I was fairly young, traveled abroad, always interested in the world. Like a lot of families in Delhi, you know, discussed politics and policy on the dining table. So these were kind of issues that I was steeped in and just always very interested in the world used to kind of in those days time and Newsweek used to be in India you used to get them every week yeah. and so I used to devour them so I was very interested in international relations uh, after my undergraduate degree I, I which was in history I uh, and in India in New Delhi at uh, Lady Shriram College I um, decided that I wanted to do IR and was set to go to the UK, had got into the LSE and was going to go there and then decided I wanted to work a couple of years. And actually then the only skill I had was 
I knew how to code. I taught myself how to code. So I actually worked in tech for about a year and a half, by which point I'd applied in the U.S., a uh, short story, I mean, the, putting, putting this very kind of in, in succinctly, ended up going to Yale to do my master's there, wow. Brookings uh, as an RA, and then went to Texas to do my PhD, and then back to Brookings uh, as a fellow and now senior fellow. I love that story. I didn't know you had that coding background, which, you know, comes in handy uh, in today's environment. It does. <laughs> when we're relying on tech so much. But a little bit about that journey. We have a couple... I think common mentors as well in um, Jim Steinberg, Strobe Talbot. For those of you who don't know, maybe you could just say a little bit about each and how you came across both of them. Sure. And I've been very kind of lucky uh, in having uh, mentors like Jim and Strobe and, and Martin Indyk, who was very supportive of my work uh, as well in the early years of when I came back to Brookings. I worked for Jim uh, Steinberg in the kind of between 2003 and about 2006. He was my boss at Brookings. I was his RA. And Jim, I mean, it, it was really interesting working with Jim. He was director of the foreign policy program at the time, because I had actually not wanted to, I wanted to do IR and I was actually working with Jim. I got the job with Jim because of my tech background. I, he wanted somebody who knew NatSec stuff, but also tech. So that's what I, I worked on transatlantic relations with him, Middle East. But he was, when I was going to do, thinking about my doing my PhD, he's the one who encouraged me and I was resisting becoming in kind of India expert. He said, we need more people who work on India. We have a lot of people who work on China. And so he was one of the people who encouraged me to actually deep dive into India and stop resisting doing it in India. For those people who don't know, Jim was the former Deputy National Security Advisor, Deputy Secretary of State, great career in government, but also in, in the academy as well. Yeah, and, and, and while I was kind of at Brookings during that first period, um, Strobe was writing his Engaging India book at the beginning, but was also just very supportive, very interested in India, uh, thinking about how to expand Brookings India work. And when I came back to Brookings in uh, after my stint where at UT doing my dissertation, where uh, Jim was on my committee and instrumental actually in me choosing this topic, uh, because I thought it might be too ambitious, and he encouraged me to do it. Um, so, as you know, Jim can be quite tough on on folks, but it makes you like he pushes you to do things that you'd think eh, either you know it's going to be too much uh, work, or you know there's what am I bringing to the table? He pushes you to bring something new to the table, and both kind of having had mentors who were both engaged intellectually but had worked in the policy world really made me kind of not just think about writing a diplomatic history, but thinking about what that might say about our present and future. So I think, you know, Strobe and, and Jim both helped me kind of think about that. You know, this is, you know, the importance of that intellectual scholarship. Both of them have a deep respect for history, uh, but then also connecting it to the present day and the future. So this kind of book, it was, it's not what I've tried to make. It, it is a diplomatic history in many ways, but it also very much tries to answer or at least contribute to answering a question that all of us are asking about kind of the U.S.-China-India triangle today. Yeah, I think what you just said is so important, this notion that history matters. And I guess I saw it firsthand where people would show up in New Delhi and be frustrated that they didn't, you know, they had just come from Europe or they had just come from East Asia and they show up in Delhi and all of a sudden there's a tough negotiation or a harder thing, harder puzzle to solve. And, you know, I remember thinking they don't perhaps 
understand the complex history, not as an excuse, but just to, so you have some context about what's going on and because that US India history is really, it's so interesting and it's not very long, to be honest, the modern era is, it's not a long history. So people should really study it and, and you've done that. I do wanna just ask you before we jump into your book, just on, I love what Steinberg told you about, you should do something on India, study India, because as you rightly point out, plenty of people studying China, plenty of people studying, had studied the Soviet era, but we, we didn't have enough people studying South Asia and India. That's really changing, I think. And I see it here in, just in Washington. There is this great cadre of now South Asia and India scholars. Tell us a little bit about that. I think you're, you're part of the lead of a, of a really good group. That's kind of you to say, Rich. I mean, I actually think, and this was something I was thinking about recently, you know, China was kicking out journalists, American journalists from a number of news outlets. It reminded me, and this, this speaks to why there wasn't um, that, that kind of large amount of, you know, number of experts. And it wasn't just because India had kind of fallen off the U.S.'s radar in many ways. Um, in the 70s, um, there was kind of a lot of pushing out of not just, uh, you know, U.S. business and policymakers, the Peace Corps, et cetera, but also scholars. And so what you had for a number of years was kind of missing generations. And so I think what's happened of, because, you know, it, it's, it ends up being very kind of path dependent. You have a missing cadre of scholars who can then teach uh, and mentor the next generation. And so I think what's happened really since I think about the mid 2000s, a combination of there's more interest in India, thanks to, I think, a, you know, um, the, the nuclear test growing uh, Indian kind of geopolitical power, but also economic power. And the US-India relationship has given rise to kind of greater interest amongst folks here in India. But I think also now you have uh, people who are there to actually mentor that next generation. And I, I will say while there's a lot more folks working on India, as well as people interested in India, there's a long way to go. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, the good thing about it is if you want to do some original work, there's so many areas you can actually work on this. So to those who are thinking about what to do in graduate school, even if you're kind of political scientist interested in kind of broader issues, India is always a fascinating case. And it actually helps you get jobs because there are not that many people working on it out there. It's a really good point. In fact, you know, I've done a lot of kind of research in this area on US-India relations in particular. And you realize there's so much written about Indian foreign policy, so much written about US foreign policy. And then you get to this subject of US-India uh, ties and, and all of a sudden, you know, it's it starts to get pretty thin. And there are some great scholars out there who have tried in the past, Ashley, Steve Cohen, Bob Blackwell, Tessie Schaefer. There's a lot of uh, great people, in it, but it's not as if there's dozens and dozens of great books on U.S.-India relations. And so I think your contribution is really going to be fill in a, a really critical void here. Thanks, Rich. One thing I, I remember bumping into you in, in Delhi actually quite often as you would be emerging from hours at the Nehru Library or somewhere else, just a, a practice point for young scholars or even middle-aged scholars, you really have become expert at reviewing the historical documents and texts, not only in India, but in the U.S. as well. And I find them to be, I also find them to be really fascinating and, and illuminating. Just 
tell us, you, it seems like you've, you've made this a little kind of subspecialty of yours to go through the historical records. Why yeah. is that? Yeah. I think it's fascinating and it's what makes this really interesting to me. I think, you know, the one always has to kind of put archives and the documents you find in context that things that are missing. I remember Strobe once told, reminded me that, look, there's a lot that doesn't go, go down in paper and there will be less and less as time goes on. And, you know, the, what was fascinating about the kind of period of studying, there were these documents. And uh, when I was doing this research, the kind of Indian documents had started to be declassified. And so we had a lot more access to that, more personal papers available. And that was fascinating uh, because those really hadn't been available before. But then we also had access to these tapes on the U.S. side. And, you know, we're never going to have that access again. But for me, what was important about that kind of archival work was, as somebody who hasn't served in government, I think, and, and this is something I'd say to a lot of younger folks who are thinking about this, is what archives opened up for me is putting me, at least um, in some ways, in that chair of somebody, you know, putting myself in the shoes of somebody who actually has to make decisions. It made me a lot more humble about saying, well, you know, why didn't they do, why didn't so-and-so do this? This is the kind of obvious answer to this. Because you suddenly see that these decisions and choices that policymakers have to make uh, aren't easy, that there are constraints that you don't necessarily think about or see outside. And so I think for me, being able to use the documents, but you have to triangulate them with other things, memoirs, interviews, other sources, it did really open up this world that I, I didn't have access to otherwise. Um, and so I'd like to think that it has made me not just a better kind of historian, but also somebody who is I don't think, for example, it is my job necessarily as a historian to judge policymakers, but it is to actually lay out the options. Sometimes I think, oh my God, that was a, not the decision I would have made. Uh, but I, th I think that archival work has given me a little bit of a window, maybe not a complete one, into thinking about how people have to think about things like domestic politics, budgets, even when they're making you know, foreign policy decisions. I think that's exactly right. And it's a great segue in, into the book because it's hard for me to, to sum it up in a few sentences, uh, Faithful Triangle, and I'm really going to let you do that. But the country, and I think in your thesis, that may be playing the biggest role in shaping U.S.-India ties is China. And that is, I think what's interesting is not just that conclusion, but your conclusion that this is not a recent phenomenon but that it actually has its roots in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And that's what's so fascinating. And I wonder if you just tell us a little bit about that and the journey. And you have some incredible quotes that remind us about what people in the United States used to think about of India in that time. Again, you, you mentioned Time Magazine. Time Magazine, 1949 quote, India could be an anchor for Asia. The New York Times, India was a great counterweight to China. So tell us a little bit about the book and the conclusions that you reached. So, I mean, up front, the two things the book uh, argues is, as you said, you know, that today we almost, you know, to, to paraphrase Jane Austen, it's a truth universally, almost universally acknowledged that China is a significant driver of U.S.-India relations. 
And what the book says is that this is not uh, either a recent or kind of episodic phenomenon. It actually goes back to Indian independence and the few years after that when the U.S. actually did, in the quotes that you mentioned reflected, but even within the U.S. government, um, as China kind of was lost, so to speak, to communism in kind of 1949, there was this sense in the search for kind of another alternative, a counterbalance, a you know, contrasting model and uh, to China and Asia. And there was India, you know, with this fledgling democratic experiment, a large Asian giant that the U.S. thought could be that alternative. Um, and so the, the kind of book actually looks at, well, was, you know, how it went from that moment of the U.S. seeing very much as, as um, many people do today, the India is its answer to this kind of China problem. Uh, but then, you know, how that actually didn't work out in the beginning, there was divergence uh, on the subject of China between the U.S. and India. Uh, and that caused problems between the two countries. But then there were also these periods of convergence where, like today, China did drive the two countries closer together. And so the book essentially says that, look, we have this history. And while I'm not arguing in the book that China the, you know, was the, the factor that mattered the most in shaping U.S.-India relations or was the only factor that mattered, but without understanding the role China played in shaping U.S.-India relations uh, during the Cold War, you cannot understand the story of uh, U.S.-India relations, which I think, for the reasons that it has historical baggage to this day, but also there are lessons that we can learn about that kind of triangular uh, relationship that have lessons, but also implications for the story today. And this is very quickly, the second uh, thing the book really does look into is this question of, is a U.S.-India partnership or alignment against China possible? And so, you know, you've had Ambassador Robert Blackwell, for example, saying that U.S. India, the U.S. and India will naturally come together when China appears as a, as a threat. Uh, you've heard kind of on the Indian side often, including prime, former Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, but others say, you know, India doesn't ally uh, with countries or even align with countries against a third country because of strategic autonomy, etc. And the book makes the argument that, look, uh, what the history tells us is the U.S.-India a partnership driven by China is neither inevitable nor impossible. It can happen. It requires uh, the two countries to agree on the nature of the challenge, the urgency of its challenge, and how to tackle so the approach to the challenge. That's that's really fascinating. Let me. I want to go back in history though, and I want to draw your attention to maybe two U.S. presidents, which I think where we had convergence, and that is uh, President Eisenhower and President Kennedy, which again surprises people. I think, you know, a lot of people are surprised when they realize Eisenhower had this incredible interest in India. I was talking to Susan Eisenhower recently, who talked about Eisenhower's, I guess, two to three week trip across the world in 1959. And she recalls President Eisenhower saying that India was really the anchor of that trip, and and that was he was very focused on going to India and supporting India. And Kennedy had a similar view about India. There's a great quote of Kennedy in the Senate where he he says, "The hinge of fate in Asia rests with India. The hinge of fate." I just found it to be a fascinating view, and that was in the late '50s, and he took that view into the presidency, but. Tell us about both those presidents and, and how they approached India. So it's very interesting because, you know, people don't think of, I think people recognize because of the 1962 war and the U.S. coming to India's assistance, 
that Kennedy was kind of, and you know, in the U.S. India context, as you know, Rich, people are put into a this person is pro-India and anti-India, or pro-U.S. and anti-U.S. Right. And one of the things the book tries to do is kind of make that more nuanced, saying you know these personalities, these presidents mattered significantly, but the structural factors often even made them change their views. And Eisenhower is a perfect example of this. Uh, and the book shows uh, that, and I think you know you you argued this in kind of your event back in December that looked at uh, Eisenhower's historic 1959 trip to India in December that year, um, that this this kind of thinking about India as a balancer to China, as a democratic model that could serve as that kind of lesson model um, aspiration for other countries in Asia and Africa was not something that started with Kennedy. It was actually something that really started to reemerge in the U.S. in the mid-50s. And so you see a real change between the first Eisenhower administration and the second Eisenhower administration, where he becomes much more comfortable with the idea of the uncommitted world or the non-aligned world. Right. So not just him, but somebody like Dulles who had called non-alignment immoral, they're the ones who then start to go and kind of back India for getting a lot of aid backed up by a lot of members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. And so you see this kind of really interesting period where because there's agreement uh, between the U.S., President Eisenhower and President Kennedy, as well as the Indian side under Prime Minister Nehru, that not only was kind of China this challenge, but they start, and, and not just a geopolitical challenge, but an ideological challenge, they start having convergence of that. But they agree that the way to tackle that challenge is a partnership with each other. And so this means U.S. economic assistance starting under President Eisenhower in, in fairly significant quantities, and then even more so in the Kennedy administration, and even through kind of the Johnson administration, as well as military assistance, and a lot more kind of interaction, also leading to uh, something you talked to Ambassador Alice Wells about, which was kind of, you know, recently, which was that when the two countries under the Eisenhower administration and the Kennedy administration had this convergence, had this driving force of China behind their partnership, they even managed, it helped them manage their differences. And so you see that during Eisenhower. Uh, and Kennedy. And what's really striking for me was in ni- the ni- during the 1960 campaign, you actually see then candidates, uh, presidential candidates, uh, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy vying to be more kind of pro-India in their comments. And it was because they both saw it as this contrast and potential counterbalance to China. That's amazing. And it's, it's amazing how much Nixon turned the other direction. So it clearly came a long way from 1960. You mentioned our event that we did about Eisenhower's trip last December in 2019. I was, I was like totally fascinated by that trip, not only because he went and he was the first U.S. president to go, but because at Roosevelt House, at the embassy there, he gave this incredible speech, short, where he talks about 2019 and warns the crowd about how the world will, quote, be in a sick place if we don't get things together. And then he goes on to talk about the promise of US India. And it was just this great glimpse from this towering figure of the 20th century. I wanna just stay on Kennedy for a second because uh, 1962 is this uh, really incredible year up and down. In, In India, of course, you have this incredible conflict with China, with Chinese troops spilling over the border. Your colleague at Brookings, Bruce Rydell, writes this amazing book about 
how Nehru had reached out to Kennedy with these uh, letters. You cover it in, in your book as well, requesting for military assistance. And part of those historical documents on the U.S. side are these incredible cables that go back and forth between Galbraith and I guess it's at that point the National Security Advisor, uh, if it was McGeorge Bundy, where he, that Washington is basically saying to Galbraith, do they really understand what they're asking for? This will fundamentally change the nature of our relationship. Do they really want our military support? Because that comes with a cost, which is we're going to be in a de facto alliance. And do they really get that? And so I wonder, you know, what your view of that 62 experience is with kind of current day, because those border disputes, those challenges are occurring up until the current minute and hour. And so what do we learn from the 62 experience? Will we be there? And or is there incredible ambiguity about that? And is that deliberate? So I think, you know, what 62 um, tells us, and to some extent, 1971, the, the war that happens nine years later when India then tilts, just as it had in 62 towards the U.S., it tilts towards the Soviet Union. One thing uh, up front that the that war experience tells us is, and actually the period both before it and after it, is that India does align when it needs to. And so this idea that non-alignment means no alignment is not actually correct as per India's own history, something that I think a number of Indians often forget, which is that actually even kind of the so-called founder of non-alignment, Indian non-alignment, Nehru, when the need arose, you know, did uh, align with the U.S. and wasn't bashful uh, about it beyond a point. He was somewhat bashful. But I think, you know, so 62 tells you that, look, when there are a certain set of conditions, uh, strategic, but also kind of very immediate when India does tilt. And I think that is what is happening today in a broader sense as well, which is India tilts when there is a major challenge, when uh, there, uh, you know, its tendency or its desire to diversify uh, in terms of its partnerships to help it deal with that challenge is not possible. When there is an available partner, and in this case, it was the U.S., and when India has in, an Indian leader has the political capacity, India cannot deal with that threat on its own. And when, when that kind of political leader has the domestic political capacity to undertake that tilt. And in, in the 62 case, this obviously happens because that threat is looming. The Soviet Union is nowhere in sight, being unhelpful. And so the public is actually very much behind this tilt towards uh, the U.S. at that period. I think the period after 62 also tells us, though, the limitations. What and something to today's context, which is... What you start to see after 62 is this period, particularly in the Johnson administration, uh, where the two sides still very much agree that China is this major challenge for both countries, even the number one challenge for both countries. But they start disagreeing on how to approach it. And so that means everything from uh, should they actually, is Pakistan part of India's solution, China solution or part of India's China problem? Um, what is the, should India be tackling this China challenge through a set of partnerships or should it build up its own capabilities? Um, should it have an exclusive partnership with the U.S. or should it, uh, you know, diversify its partnerships to have multiple partners? And then there is also this aspect relevant for today, which is during kind of after the 62 war, both sides, the U.S. and India start to question each other's ability 
to serve as that balance or that partner vis-a-vis their China problem. For the U.S., it's because they think India is kind of too caught up in its uh, rivalry with Pakistan, is not reforming economically enough, all sounds familiar, not doing enough in terms of building up its own military capabilities. And for India, they think that the U.S. is way too distracted in Vietnam and not kind of, and putting pressure on India to sign up for an exclusive partnership. So I think the lesson for today is, look, you have to kind of continue to invest. Uh, it's not about nat- just about nature pushing you together. It's about nurture. But also that you have to, you can't assume that the other side will naturally want a partnership. You have to constantly have utility for the other side. And that means building your own capability and commitment. Um, and so I think it does very much have lessons uh, for today. And we'll see where it goes. But I think the final thing I'd say about kind of that, um, that period in today is, there was a lesson, which is if the U.S., if both sides press for purity on the U.S. side, you want an alliance, you want something more like an alliance. And for India, if it is all about autonomy and, you know, pure form of it, uh, this partnership will not go far. You, um, let me just ask you about that, though. Do you really think the U.S. wants an alliance today? I mean, let's let's say India came forward tomorrow and said, we're ready for some extension of NATO into South Asia. You know, we want to be an allied partner of of the United States. Do, do we really want that in Washington? No, because, I mean, I think this is something I, offer, I point out in the book, which was even the case in the 60s, um, by the mid-60s, is because that would not just mean kind of the US, India being a U.S. ally for all the kind of, you know, yes, it'll be part, but that it would mean a commitment. And does the U.S. really want to take on another commitment? And I think people often throw the word ally around, and I wish people wouldn't do it, because it means a very specific thing. And so I like to use the word alignment versus kind of alliance. I think there are some people, though, so I don't think the U.S. wants an alliance. I do think you do have still a number of people who do want more ally-like behavior. Not that allies haven't been tough for the U.S. to deal with, including France uh, uh, and others who behaved a lot like India. But I think there is there is a sense of kind of on the on the U.S. side of some people who are often disappointed and then get disillusioned when India doesn't behave more like an ally. And I think that's on the kind of the mirror of that on the Indian side is that, you know, India will, doesn't want an alliance, but then gets really disappointed when, for example, the US doesn't, you know, say enough or do enough. And so people need to get used to the fact that if you don't want to be an ally, you don't get that security assurance. Having said that, I will say one of the things where this alliance thing has had a role is the systems on both sides are set up. So the U.S. system still is set up often processes, et cetera, to deal with allies and adversaries. I think this has implications and which have started to be alleviated somewhat in terms of defense trade and other issues. And on the Indian side, the system is set up to not ally with anybody. And so as you get closer, it actually becomes more of a problem. And so, you know, this will play out in different ways. Like we can't send more people to train in the U.S. because then we have to balance it out by sending more people to Russia. Right. You're so right. You are so right about that. And, you know, I think we have to start talking about, you know, the phrase natural allies, which Prime Minister Vajpayee, Prime Minister Modi, uh, you know, U.S. presidents have, have mentioned. 
is I think an important construct or allies absent the alliance, you know, is something that I've talked about. And, and what does that entail? Because that is going to have to be the model for this century, right? Something agile, something that is not just about buying and selling defense equipment, but you're bound together by a set of principles and ideas and values. So I, I do think we have the right foundation. I have so many questions to ask you and is I want to make sure it's okay with you. Can we go a little over time? Is that all right? Yeah. It is fine with me. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to ask you, I want to bring this into the current day and ask you about China, Pakistan and China, Russia, because I, especially, you know, China, Pakistan, a lot of people look at, you know, a lot of people just assume that this is a, a partnership that exists to make India crazy and has no other actual value in it in terms of shared values between the Chinese and the Pakistanis. And on China, Russia, I think people are shocked to learn that the leading provider of military equipment to China is in fact Moscow. And that in recent times, the leader of, of China has traveled to Moscow more than any other country. and. When you ask the Indians about this, they say, well, you know, we're, we're not too worried about it. But that, that is a concerning development. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about both of those relationships. Sure. So on the China-Russia, I actually think, you know, this is fascinating because I think that dynamic and what happens with that dyad, that, that bilateral will not just for India, but for a number of countries shape options and shape the environment in the Indo-Pacific and more broadly in the years ahead. For India, there has always been an interest in, because they have always seen Russia, or at least since the you know, late 50s, early 60s, they've seen Russia as part of their ch balancing strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. And so for them, they are deeply, whatever they say publicly, they're deeply concerned about the fact that China and Russia are getting closer they do not like the fact that despite assurance to the assurances to them to the contrary, the, US, the Chinese have supplied the Russian or the Russians have supplied the Chinese with advanced military equipment. In fact, for example, you know, the S-400 went first to uh, the Chinese, then was offered to India. Right. And so I think, you know, they, they are deeply concerned. But their answer to that tends to be that this actually is more the reason for India to engage with Russia, because they hope that just like during the Cold War, that this is inherently a contra contradictory partnership, a short-term opportunistic one, and that it, there will eventually be a Sino-Soviet or a Sino-Russian split. And so they want to keep kind of that door open to the Russians. So their way of doing it is because there aren't too many other, it is a transactional relationship at one level, the India-Russian one, is by doing things like buying Russian equipment. There are other reasons, of course, as well. But I think on the China-Russia, this is something India watches very closely. And so you saw Prime Minister Modi go out to Vladivostok and give the speech saying, Russia is part of our Indo-Pacific strategy. And Russia, you should be interested in this and stop resisting this idea of the Indo-Pacific. And you saw Foreign Minister Lavrov essentially go to India and, and lambast the idea at a Ministry of External Affairs event uh, of the Indo-Pacific. So they're not on the same page on this. I think on China-Pakistan, um, India sees this problem now as linked. There are even some people in India who say that, look, Pakistan is now a subset of India's China problem. 
uh, I, the others, you know, the Indian military plans for a two-front war, um, and the, the one the Indian Army chief, as much as said that publicly the other day, without naming uh, the countries. And what has deeply concerned uh, India over the last uh, few years, and particularly since the China-Pakistan economic corridor, um, but that this relationship has actually deepened over time, and it has involved not just a building up kind of. Um, uh, you know, Pakistan's nuclear and uh, military capabilities, but has uh, provided the kind of umbrella or the protection that, China, that Pakistan needs at various international organizations. So on the one hand, so India deeply worries about this, but they actually think that this is, again, one reason to maintain engagement with China to try to limit what it will do, for example, in terms of whether it's, you know, uh, how much it will go, f- how far it will go in back in Kashmir or Pakistan's uh, position on Kashmir, etc., which is that they, ho- they have been hope that engagement with China will actually uh, limit or set some red lines to its uh, cooperation with Pakistan. Others have argued it hasn't worked so far. Why would it work in the future? Yeah, it's it's a great way of explaining it. I I do think the China, Pakistan, China, Russia, you know, these other triangles also will create an impetus for stronger US-India ties if if we can if we can play things right. And and so let me just maybe try to wrap us up here by bringing us into the current era with the Trump administration and just kind of what you think the view is from Delhi. And I'm not talking about the Houston or Gujarat kind of events. I'm really talking about perception of U.S. reliability, the perception of U.S. retrenchment or withdrawal from Asia. And then finally, the ratcheting up of tensions between the U.S. and China either a trade war, which from my estimation has been paid for by U.S. farmers and, and we haven't seen a lot in return, or the kind of saber rattling after the pandemic. What, what's the general feeling of, about the approach from India's viewpoint? I think it's mixed. I think on the one hand, India has liked that the Trump administration has said the quiet part out loud, <laughs> um, that China is a challenge that it needs to be kind of dealt with. And, uh, you know, you can't kind of look the other way because of larger interests or kind of other interests, whether that's kind of climate change or economic incentives uh, or imperatives. And so I think on the one hand, there is this sense that, look, finally the U.S. is coming around. Now, this was a trend, as, as you know, Rich, that was happening even before the Trump administration. But I think this is encapsulated in kind of the free and open Indo-Pacific con- uh, concept, which brings India in, uh, again, trends that had started in the past. So I think on the one hand, India is like the continuity with, you know, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration seeing, not ju- seeing India as part of whatever they're kind of pivot to Asia or the free and open Indo-Pacific, that India is an anchor, uh, India is a linchpin, as uh, former Defense Secretary Panetta said, um, and so I think they've liked that part, U.S.-India relations on the back of that, also thanks to the Doklam crisis between China and India in 2017. We've actually seen uh, deep kind of defense and security cooperation over the last few years, agreements signed that India had been waiting on to sign for ages, as you probably you know, had, had banging your head against the wall on these uh, de- defense-enabling agreements as well. On the other hand, I think there are a couple of things that India is concerned about on the U.S.-China side with the Trump administration, that it might get too heated 
So India likes the Goldilocks, you know, idea that U.S.-China relationship shouldn't be kind of too icy and too cold or kind of too warm, which kind of takes them out of the equation. They like them to be just right, where they can take advantage of a U.S.-China competition without having to choose sides if there's a U.S.-China confrontation. And so I think where they've been concerned is, you know, the trade war has spilled over into them. They're the subjects of tariffs. So they would have liked a U.S., you know, a, a strategy towards China that would take an allies and partners along, collectively pressure China on some of these issues. Um, they've liked some ways. So, you know, they've signed on to the Quad. They're working on the Quad Plus. But I think they would have liked a more collective approach. I do think also there's some concern about the extent of this competition. And if it turns into confrontation, it'll actually create problems and potentially spill over for India, which is sitting right next door. It is also going to require some kind of tough choices for India on things like technology issues. And so I think they're watching very closely. I think they they would probably not like to get caught up in this uh, US-China competition, but they very much want to make use of it. So I think they, they don't want to get into the kind of ideological debate of whether China is a challenge on that side. But they do share a number of concerns about China that the U.S. has and the Trump administration has had. So I think they have a mixed view. It's neither kind of all positive nor all negative. And they worry deeply about the reliability issue, which is how do you know tomorrow President Trump doesn't go and sign a deal with Xi Jinping? And that Indian fear of the G, of a G2 has existed since the early 70s since kind of the Shanghai communique. Uh, And so uh, this is something that at the back of their mind, broadly, for them, the Trump administration has provided the validation for why they are non-aligned. Fascinating. And we're going to have to leave it here and wait for your next book or your next round of tweets on social media. So I want to just do a couple things. So tell us, how do people get the book if they want to get the book in this kind of lockdown environment? So there are still some books available in bookstores, uh, but I think you know hard copies are hard to get a hold of these days, even for me. But the this is the advantage of ebooks, and so uh, they're available on Kindle around the world, and in fact are discounted right now. So they're the cheapest I've ever seen them on Kindle. Um, so I'd buy a bunch of copies if I was uh, if I had a way to distribute them that way. So uh, online is probably the best way these days in ebook version. Great. And then how do people uh, follow you on Twitter and social media? I am, if you really want to follow me on Twitter, uh, which could be a dangerous thing, I'm at Tanvi underscore Madan uh, on, uh, uh, on Twitter. I am not on Instagram or any of those things yet, but uh, Twitter is where I, uh, is my main kind of social media platform. Got it. And the next project, tell us, you mentioned it, but what, what should we look for? So I'm actually kind of working just on a short term, working kind of on a long read on how the coronavirus uh, and everything that's played out with COVID has shaped, has kind of what kind of, what's the impact been on Indian opinion of, of China? And so I break it down in terms of how, has there been a shift in government policy? Has there been how the public has seen this. And on top of that, you have this, you know, boundary incident uh, going on between China and India. So I'm looking at that for kind of a more short term project. Uh, and then kind of the longer term is this book project that I'm working on, which is a uh, working title is Balancing Act, which is looking at kind of India's interacting kind of choices between China and the U.S. since 1980. I love that. Well, uh, Tommy, really, thank you so much for joining us today. Incredible. Could have gone on another another hour or so. And we, we really appreciate you spending this time. We want to thank our listeners. And please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your 
podcast. I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Tanvi online at the Asia Group website, which is just theasiagroup.com. Tanvi, thanks again. Everyone stay safe, healthy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Rich. Thanks. Thanks.